This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the new season. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Now that we have such a direct hit in the most important global supply hub of wheat, this has a clear link toward major geopolitical events linked to food security. Over a decade ago, wheat prices were considered one of the main sources for the hour spring. That's McKinsey senior partner Daniel Amenitza talking about how the war in Ukraine is hurtling us toward a global food crisis. He joins McKinsey partner Nicola Denis to discuss. Daniel, Nicola, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Let's start with some context. Access to food is clearly of urgent concern for the millions of Ukrainians who find themselves in the throes of this tragic invasion. So I want to acknowledge first that vital frontline concern. But the war in Ukraine also threatens to disrupt the food system globally, well beyond the conflict zone. Daniel, help us understand what that means. Yeah, thank you. As you rightly recognized, the attention of all of us is on the immediate crisis in Ukraine, including the food crisis uh, we all see. But as, as we look at the broader global food supply chain, we clearly see this conflict shaking the important pillars of this system in an already disturbed context. In the last couple of years, we had this extreme situation of a global pandemic, which clearly tested, but actually in many cases proved the resilience of the food system. But now, now we feel like we are even in a more truly unimaginable situation of such a war at this scale in Europe, in such a critical food supply hub of the Black Sea, especially when it comes to wheat and to kind of fertilizers. And this instability, we all feel, starts to create this food supply chain whiplash effect, which is really hard to fully project the implication of that. And this crisis is going to have a clear secondary effect on other breadbaskets like Brazil, Western Europe, Russia, which are critical, right, for export of fertilizers, which is the most important yield driver for farmers globally. And... You know, this event hits us at a point where we already saw some unresolved challenges coming from sustained high prices for agri commodities and fertilizers since late 2020. We've seen corn prices, for example, at well above $5 per bushel since early 2021. So this is well over a year now. And despite several efforts to strengthen the global food supply, and the overall resiliency we've seen in the last couple of years, we are quite concerned about such a crisis. And the world, to some extent, seems unprepared for the crisis which is unfolding now. One exception I may mention is China, which significantly increased its strategic reserve by over 70% since 2008 levels. But many other markets in the world are not at the same level of readiness. Let's get a little more specific about, as you referred to it, this whiplash effect, about the role of the Black Sea region and the scale of disruption that we're actually talking about. 
Nicola, how much of the global food supply is actually at risk? So first of all, it's worth noting that when it comes to food supply, there are globally six breadbaskets, and the Ukraine-Russia region is one of these breadbaskets. Those breadbaskets supply roughly 60-70% of the uh, global ag commodities. And if you look at Ukraine-Russia, they are responsible for roughly 30% of global export of wheat, 65% of sunflowers. And in a context where those markets are increasingly tight and interconnected. So you can imagine that a slight disruption in the supply creates some impacted on price. Now, just looking at production, of course, we don't know what's going to be the length and the scale of this conflict. But if we actually run some scenarios, and for more perspective, this year, between 19 and 34 million tons of that export production could actually disappear. And if we fast forward on what it could mean by 2023, it could be 10 to 43 million tons. If you want to translate that in terms of livelihood and what it means for people, that represents caloric intake for 60 to 150 million people. But the impact will actually be felt on a broader effect than this 60 and 150 million people because they create impact on price of those commodities that will be felt on even a broader range of the population. And if I take some very specific example, countries like Egypt, Turkey, significantly rely on export from this region for the caloric intake of their citizen. In fact, Egypt has 60% of its import coming from Ukraine and Russia. It is important for their domestic consumption, but also a big processor of those commodities that they export to the rest of Eastern Africa. So impact of what's happening in Ukraine-Russia can be felt across many countries, but then also on countries that are dependent on transformation that happen on those secondary countries. So cascading effects. And to be clear, here we're talking about a supply shock due to the physical effects of the war on agricultural production. Are Ukrainian farmers even able to proceed at this point with planting their spring crops? Indeed, when you talk about ag value chain, it is a bit more complex than other supply chain, right? Because there are some specific windows for preparing the field, for planting, for harvesting that you need to respect. And when we're running our scenarios to understand the implication of this crisis on agriculture, we need to take into account those specific windows. So for instance, if you think about barley, sunflower, maize. The planting season is happening right now. It's unclear if all the farmers are able to do that for the moment. And then there are some other crops like wheat that would have a planting season around July, August. A prolonged conflict would also mean that this would have an impact on the later production of winter wheat, for instance. And if you see a continuation of this conflict in the later months towards this summer, you could expect that you would have problem to actually, even if the, the crops are planted, to harvest them. But the impact doesn't stop just at planting and harvesting. Those commodities are bulky. If we think about Ukraine, Russia, this is roughly 105 million tons of commodities. And we typically transport them via the Black Sea, via ships. We've seen that some of those ports have been uh, damaged or enabled to operate. So you could expect that there will be disruption also from a logistics standpoint that will not be fully absorbed by alternatives like rails and road. 
Grains are global commodities, right? And in the U.S., we have already seen grocery prices surge during the pandemic. I would imagine the same is true in Europe. Should we expect to pay more for, for example, a loaf of bread if these harvests are disrupted? Say more, Daniel, about what's so critical about wheat in the context of the global food supply. Yeah, wheat is a critical component when we think about food security. 100% of wheat price increase, which we've already observed in the last couple of years, you can translate this significant increase of wheat into basic bread price, since wheat represents 60% of bread's raw material costs. And this is why, now that we have such a direct hit in the most important global supply hub of wheat. This has a clear link toward a major geopolitical events link to food security. And we know that bread is such an important factor when it comes to social unrest in so many emerging markets. Over a decade ago, wheat prices were considered one of the main sources for the hour spring. Sure. And vulnerable populations obviously suffer the most when prices rise. I think we've already begun to see some unrest in a few countries, for example, in Sudan or in Greece, where the farmers were protesting higher fuel and higher fertilizer prices a couple of weeks back. Speaking of which, Daniel, you mentioned a secondary effect involving access to fertilizer. Say more about fertilizer and how it matters within this global food ecosystem. So fertilizers is not just an input. It's probably the most important input for the farmers. And we've seen the NPK, which is a combination of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, the core components of fertilizers, playing such an integral part of the Green Revolution of the 60s, which allowed more to double the yield and productivity over a couple of decades. And this is one of the main drivers that allowed the growth population we've seen in the previous century. And as you look at today's farmer's life, right, fertilizers are such a critical, essential part of the ongoing operations and roughly 30% depends on the crop of the overall cost of operation. So how important is the Black Sea region to fertilizer production and what might a supply hit look like? Yeah, so let's focus on potash and nitrogen, two out of the three main fertilizers. When it comes to potash, There's two global major supply hubs. One is in Canada, and the other one is Russia and Belarus. And Russia and Belarus are very well organized and supply, especially to key markets like Latin America. And the situation now clearly led to massive price increase of potash uh, over double in the last couple of months. And we know that this is a situation which we're going to take time to address, given the relatively tight supply-demand balance in in the world of potash, and the time it takes to address those gaps. If the situation of sanctions and other aspects will continue logistics shortages, this could cause significant aspects of supply shortages and price increase on potash. And nitrogen, nitrogen is directly linked to energy, and we're all familiar with the energy crisis. And that's another example where current energy crisis would have direct effect on nitrogen prices and supply availability. Okay, so you mentioned earlier that all this is happening on top of an already tight food supply. Nicola, say more. 
the wheat price between Q2 2020 and December 2021, it went already up by 18%. So we already had a food security issue well before the Ukraine-Russia crisis started. The cause of that are multiple, right? I mean, there is an increased demand overall, right? You know, majority of those commodities go into producing protein, for instance, right? The increase of the demand of protein driven by part of the world like Asia, you know, demanding more of those protein cause already a, a lot of additional demands. Then we didn't solve some of the issues like, you know, the food waste, right? We still waste 30% of our food. And on top of that, we start to see some first impact of climatic events. Think about last summer, right? We had the hard wheat, so the, the durum that is used to make pasta, for instance, which is a basis for many people to feed themselves, disrupted by a combination of very drought summer in Canada and a very wet summer in France. You know, two of those bread basket for this. In fact, our research has shown that those disruptions are supposed to, to multiply by four by, until 2050. With also very lately some of more expensive raw materials, right? Fertilizer. So all of that has actually created a very tight food security situation uh, well before we started the crisis. And the crisis actually just hitting another level in the complexity of this uh, food system. So it sounds like a convergence of pretty substantive disruptions. The media has been reporting on the potential for a global food emergency and an increase in global hunger. How concerned should we be? So we should definitely be concerned. But the extent of that concern should be assessed in the coming weeks and months. What really matters is actually which of these milestones for the agriculture in the different bread baskets, from planting to harvesting to preparing the field, which of those milestones will be hit and which one we will miss. We should also turn our attention not just to these things that are under the spotlight of the media today, but you know some of the secondary impact we could see. Daniel was mentioning the fertilizer situation in countries that actually need fertilizer for the soil, like Brazil. Well, Let's imagine that the conflict prolonged and we actually see some potential disruption on the supply of fertilizer, right? Planting season in Brazil will be around July, August. So it means basically that some of the inputs needs to arrive a bit before. So a prolonged conflict will actually have an impact on the next planting season for Brazil and therefore will actually have a you know compounding impact of what we already see ahead of us in terms of food crisis. So we need to study, understand those scenarios on this longevity of this crisis, the extent that it will have, the reaction of some of the stakeholders, including governments, to actually really understand to which extent we should be concerned by this food crisis. What's our view on how the risks of this disruption might compare with previous food emergencies, for example, the global food crises of 2007-2008? So from a price inflation, cost inflation point of view, we see some similar patterns at this stage. If we compare to the both agri-commodities and fertilizers prices we've seen about a decade ago, the question which is on top of all of our minds is the longevity of this crisis and the ongoing effect this could have. And having such a hit in the middle of an inflationary environment, which further boosts inflation and shake the supply chain, is one of those cases which is really hard to predict. 
where it's going to lead, especially if you continue to throw in the mix the geopolitical effects of this crisis and related events that could follow. We combine, in this case, not just a commodity shock, like we actually had back in 2008, but also a input shock, right? We talked about earlier shortage of potash, of other macronutrients we need. This is actually combining two crises in one. So acknowledging that the war is obviously highly dynamic, it's uncertain, and the outcome and longevity, as you said, remains unknown. Would you give us a sense of what a limited disruption scenario might look like? A limited disruption scenario will still have an an impact until 2024. What it will mean in practice is we would potentially miss some of the planting season much so now, but we will actually manage to, to resume the rest of the season after we will actually see a uh, limited uh, sanction, at least related to ag commodities and fertilizer. And we will see a relatively, let's say, open use of commodities. So countries not cutting the borders for uh, exporting to other countries. And what about severe and extended disruption, which clearly we hope does not materialize, but what might that look like? So in that case, we will typically miss several of those uh, important milestones for agriculture, right? Several planting, harvesting season. We also will see some of the refugee situation worsens, right? Which basically means less labor available in the place that we need hands to do agriculture. An escalation of the sanction that at some point could also include some of the ag commodities. Also, reaction from several governments that decide because of the scale of the situation, they stop exporting some of the ag commodities to other countries that need them. So that is a situation that will result into a significant decrease of the, let's say, global food trade. Countries that would actually need to rely much more on their own reserve and on tight global supply. Nicola, you referred there to trade protectionism. What about the converse? How might countries across the globe come together to compensate at least for shorter term supply shortfalls? So very short term, we actually have few levers. Indeed, as you said, we could actually plead for avoiding some of the of the mistake in the, that we've seen 10 years ago in the previous uh, food crisis, where we started to see some countries banning export and therefore worsening the internal situation, you know, farmers don't having access to uh, global revenues, but also countries not able to import. So limiting those uh, trade restrictions is, is probably one. Second is to reflect about the, the balance we actually have between food and fuel. As I was mentioning earlier, 18% of corn globally today goes to fuel or biochemicals. So rethinking about that balance, at least for a brief moment of time, And then also thinking about how we use some of the strategic reserve. Now, if we expand a bit the horizon of what we can do, you can then think about using the fallow land, right? Especially in Europe, we actually have set aside 10, 15% of fallow land for biodiversity purpose. We might temporarily get access to that. Tracking, eliminating some of the waste, rethinking also the source of protein, right? We know that red meat, white meat, alternative protein are all options that have different profile in terms of consumption of commodities. So all of those would be levers that you can actually also use if you take a bit of a a broader lens of time. Daniel, 
how do you see the war in Ukraine changing the food and agriculture industry in the longer term? So if you look at the innovation front, we're going to see and start seeing the last few months much more focus by investors and other players on ag tech and food tech fronts across biosolutions, alternative proteins, vertical farming, and many other segments. We also expect to see a noticeable behavioral shift across all the key players in the system by starting with the farmers to be way more efficient in terms of use of fertilizers, crop inputs, reducing waste and the like, consumers when it comes to diet change uh, and other technologies for alternative solutions. And even at a national level, we'll see hopefully way more attention and acceleration of some act transformations in key countries, especially emerging markets. One could hope that such a food crisis linked to climate change burning platform could be the big acceleration of the global food system transition toward a much more sustainable model in the coming years. There is a need to keep attention of most vulnerable people, right, for which this crisis actually has a significant impact on the importance of food in the share of wallet. While we encourage this acceleration, we would have to continue and pay special attention to the immediate needs of food security, which we already see clearly emerging across Ukraine, Russia, and we start seeing initial indication across other emerging markets. Daniel and Nicola, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Lucia. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And check out the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. And if you would, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks.